You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 12th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, more classified government documents are found at a second location, piling on the embarrassment for the US President Joe Biden. Also ahead, we'll hear about the latest report from Human Rights Watch as protests appear in China and Iran are their hopeful signs. Plus a check-in from our Latin Affairs correspondent in Montevideo and we head to French Polynesia for this week's Global Musical Countdown, don't we, Fernando Augusto Pacheco? Absolutely, Yorana, Emma. I think we have a lovely and chilled surprise with their music charts. It is. It's absolutely grab a drink and find your sunglasses. It's all coming up on the briefing live from London. We begin today with the news that a second batch of classified documents has been found dating back from Joe Biden's time as US Vice President. The circumstances of the discovery and what information the government documents contain are not being released to the public, but it is a fresh embarrassment for Joe Biden. So to discuss what we know so far, I'm joined by down the line by Scott Lucas, adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin. Hello, Scott. Good to have you with us. It's great to be here. Um, So, I mean, not to sort of absolutely bastardise the importance of being earnest in Oscar Wilde's play, the great quote from Lady Bracknell is to lose one set of documents may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. Yes, and at the risk of bastardising other sayings, (laughs) I'm in the process of seeing a molehill being turned into a very big mountain. Here's the perspective on what we know so far about the classified documents at two locations connected with President Joe Biden. There were 10 classified documents found at the first location, which is a center connected with his time from when he was vice president under Barack Obama from 2009 to 2017. Uh, The second findings have not actually been announced by anybody. There's a person, quote, connected with the uh, investigation who has leaked this. So we have no idea of how many documents. We have no idea of the level of classification, whether it's just confidential, secret, or top secret. We have no idea what the documents are about. In other words, we don't really know what's there in that handful of documents. What we do know is this, that the documents apparently made their way to these centers as a result of an administrative error. Nothing deliberate, no type of underhanded activity by Biden, but documents either didn't have their classification uh, classification marks removed before they were released, or they got mixed in with unclassified documents. Now, you still have to have a review because that is an error. It's a basic breach. But let's compare this with what happened with Donald Trump, because that's where I think I know where we're going. Donald Trump and his team stole, stole hundreds of classified documents including top secret documents, including documents on another country's nuclear program. They kept those documents for months at Mar-a-Lago in Florida without notifying anybody. When it was discovered what happened, Donald Trump lied that he had the documents. Then the Trump team tried to withhold the documents. And then when the FBI finally got the documents, the Trump team has spent months in court trying to prevent anybody from reviewing the documents. So in 
any comparison of these two cases between Biden and Trump, well, that simply serves the Trumpist agenda, which is to deflect from Trump's legal and political troubles by any means necessary. And I'm afraid that a lot of reputable media outlets are being led by the nose on this one to make Joe Biden the headline rather than Donald Trump. The difficulty that you're finding now, though, is that this is going back to the Donald Trump, um, the, the comparison being drawn with Donald Trump, yes, elevates the Joe Biden, well, or rather it sort of mitigates the Joe Biden document discovery problem. Nonetheless, you say it was an administrative error. You are saying that, you know, they're, they're, you're saying that, you know, this is, this is not right. This is, this is an error of process. If you take that as an incident in itself, how serious is it? Oh, it's serious when any classified documents get out. I'm going you know, to give you a newsflash. Emma, I, you, know, you know that I've worked in archives for a number of years on research projects. I found classified documents that made their ways into archives. So this does happen. It is then reported. It is then checked out. And then you then try to correct the error. What happened on this occasion, to be very important about this, is that Joe Biden's lawyers immediately notified the National Archives when these documents were found last November in the first of the two locations. The Justice Department immediately took this in hand to find out how serious there would have been in terms of a security breach in terms of the level of classified documents. They are now compiling their report. In other words, they're following the rules of the system. And following the rules of the system is necessary when you have errors which are made which in comparison with the Trump case, is one where the Trump team did not follow the rules of the system. And that's the key and essential difference that shouldn't be lost. Uh, this is nonetheless going to give a, a, you know much more ammunition for the Republicans. Well, yeah, that's politics. And we knew this was going to happen because when the Trumpists effectively took control of the House of Representatives by holding Kevin McCarthy hostage, the new House Speaker, they demanded a series of frivolous investigations to amplify their conspiracy theories and to try to tear down Joe Biden. Now, that's fine. That's what Trumpists do. That is the playbook that Trump himself used when he is in office. Why I'm sounding a little bit, let's say, stern about this is, is that a lot of media outlets are falling for the clickbait, are falling for the exaggerations, and not actually calling out the politics which is going on here. Look, if Donald Trump had only had 10 documents found at Mar-a-Lago, if those documents had only been confidential, if Trump and his team had returned the documents properly to the National Archives, quite rightly, we wouldn't be talking about Donald Trump. So when Joe Biden and his team followed the process which is needed and that is desired in this, why again are you trying to follow the Trumpist playbook or getting led by the nose with the Trumpist playbook to make Joe Biden the center of this piece, rather than the guy in Florida who only two years ago tried to hold office through an attempted coup. Nonetheless, I mean, the, the mood music could just simply suggest that with or without Donald Trump's uh, rather, you know, more elaborate Mar-a-Lago document hall, that there is a level of incompetence in the Biden administrative uh, process, which could suggest, you know, it could be, you know, which is not something that you want from your president or indeed your vice president when he was, when he was in that position. You want to go back to Oscar Wilde since we started with it? Certainly in terms of uh, having an administrative error which takes place, it's not good. It's never good in any organization. Errors do happen, however. To suggest that this is part of systematic incompetence on the part of Joe Biden, 
who, by the way, had nothing to do in terms of the review of the documents, the review that actually caused the error, who in terms of this actually did not know that the documents were held for years at this location connected with him. No, this isn't systematic incompetence. This isn't criminal behavior. And to use those words and to use them loosely, well, guess what? A guy named Steve Bannon said a few years ago, you remember him, chief advisor to Donald Trump, chief strategist. When you're in political trouble or when you're actually in the, you know, just mixing up in politics, you throw mud on the wall and see if it sticks. We're in the process of a lot of mud being thrown on a lot of walls. And we need to clean it off to keep this in perspective. Scott Lucas, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is nine minutes past midday. Let's hear now from Paige Reynolds, who has the day's other news headlines. Paige. Thanks, Emma. President Vladimir Putin has replaced Russia's top commander in Ukraine just three months after he was installed. The reshuffle comes as the battle for Solodar continues. Russian private military firm Wagner Group said its forces had captured all of Solodar, while Ukraine's military has denied these claims. The US is deploying an upgraded marine regiment to Okinawa in southern Japan in the face of increased Chinese military activity. The Japanese Prime Minister is due to meet Joe Biden at the White House on Friday as the two countries announce strengthening military ties. And a Ukrainian soldier has had successful surgery to remove an unexploded grenade from his chest. Senior officials in Kyiv said the team of sappers neutralised the munition and described the procedure as one that would go down in medical textbooks. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Paige. Now to the Human Rights Watch Annual Report 2023. Published today, it concludes that while, and I quote, a litany of human rights crises emerged over the last year, 2022 also presented new opportunities to help strengthen the protection against violations. Well, to discuss the report's key findings, I'm delighted to say joining me on the line is Yasmin Ahmed, UK Director of Human Rights Watch. A very warm welcome to the programme. Thank you, Justin. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so let's just, you know, I mentioned a moment ago, just this lit- litany of human rights crises. I think we could just arguably say that absolutely top of that list is Ukraine, where the ultimate abuse of human rights has been taking place since February. Yes, well, quite, that's right. And um, I mean, Human Rights Watch has been documenting the the violations and the crimes that have been committed against Russia, I'm uh, sorry, committed by Russia, um, and and as well as other sides to the, part, the parties to the conflict as well. And we've seen um, not only indiscriminate attacks and violations, but we've also seen um, extrajudicial killings, we've seen detention, we've seen torture. And it's certainly one of the most egregious situations that we currently have before us now in terms of human rights. Um, and also just talk to us a little bit about is this where are we seeing a sort of an overall picture of an increase or decrease in 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 human rights abuses given the fact that what is happening you in Ukraine maybe act as a cue for other governments and administrations to to follow suit not in terms of launching a full-scale invasion but in terms of abusing people so I think, I mean, I think we've certainly seen, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily characterise it as, as, as being worse or not as bad, but we've certainly continued to see a litany of human rights abuses happening across the world. Obviously, the one that's most apparent, as you note, is the invasion by Russia of Ukraine and the abuses and violations and crimes that have been committed in that context. But we've also continued to see crimes being committed by the Chinese government, for example, in Xinjiang, 
the over a million people, Uyghurs, that are being detained there and being subject to indefinite detention and torture and mistreatment. We've also continued to see human rights abuses and new human rights abuses that have emerged in countries such as Afghanistan, Iran, Sudan, Myanmar, and the ongoing conflict in Ethiopia. We've seen grave human rights abuses committed by all sides to the conflict. So unfortunately, we do see a persistent pattern of human rights abuses occurring. However, we are seeing some differences as well, which is very important. And what Human Rights Watch is really saying now is what we're doing, we've reflected on 2022, and we're saying that whilst human rights abuses continue, there are changes and what the way that the international community responded, for example, in relation particularly to the invasion of Ukraine, suggests that states can come together and mobilise effectively to ensure that there's accountability, ensure that there's no longer impunity for these human rights abuses. And one could argue if the international community had in fact mobilised in 2014 when Russia had originally invaded certain and occupied certain parts of, of in the eastern parts of, of Ukraine, and certainly and the Russia's actions in, in Syria, that maybe we wouldn't have seen what we have now. So I think there's a lesson learned, but there's certainly also a glimmer of light to see that the international community can take very concrete measures, including, you know, referring a case to the International Criminal Court, the Human Rights Council mobilised states have taken unprecedented action in terms of sanctions against Russia so it cannot, you know, effectively mobilise in Ukraine. So I think there are possibilities. We also, let's also talk about the possibilities that can come from within countries themselves. I mean, you mentioned the international community and how it can hold other nations and authorities to, to account. But when you look at what happened in China, when you look at what has happened in Iran with dreadful consequences, let's be clear, for those who actually took part. Those protests, arguably, many people would have thought were unheard of. Well, quite. I mean, we've, as you said, it's been a year of unprecedented action by civil society, by people on the ground who are rising up in circumstances where we could not have even imagined they would have, and in circumstances where they're doing it at the gravest threat to their life and those of their families. As you note, in China, against the COVID policies and the subsequent re response of the Chinese government, both in terms of its lockdown and then its release of people and its mismanagement of that situation. We've seen it also in Iran, obviously, um, with the initially with the death of Masha Amini, but then subsequently this has moved into so much more and people, again, are risking their lives. We know that there have been four people so far that have been subject arbitrarily to the death penalty in Iran for merely protesting against the Iranian regime. But in Sudan, in Myanmar, we cannot forget the people who are on the streets continually, despite the repression of the junta of the Myanmar military, who are continuing to say we will not accept this despite their lives being at threat. So I think certainly one of the things that we've seen and what we can hope to hold on to is the fact that people, people on the ground in countries are saying no longer will we accept this and, in fact, we will risk everything. And I think there's a role and responsibility for the international community to support them in ways that they can. And I think also corporations as well play a huge part in this, ensuring that they are not 
propelling and continuing violations or, or, or assisting in violations that are happening in any countries in the world as well. Well, tell us a little bit more about that because, I mean, we saw an enormous amount of um controversy when it came to the holding of the World Cup in Qatar, which is a country which has questionable records when it comes to human rights. We're seeing an enormous um, publicity drive by the likes of Saudi Arabia, um, accusations that the nation is, is, you know, trying to sports wash, greenwash its reputation by getting high profile sports people to go down there. There is this problem, isn't there, that the, the, the human rights abuses exist, but when you have big corporations that go in there and when people realise that there is a source of income to be had from uh, a nation with deep pockets, the human rights abuses are often just put to one side and accepted as an unnecess- you know, an unpleasant part of life, but you hold your nose and it'll be all right. Yes, quite. And I think you're absolutely right. The examples that we've seen of sports washing and greenwashing say exactly that, particularly in relation, as we note most recently in the World Cup, where we've seen the sporting body, the the, the International Football Association sporting body, FIFA, who, as you know, 12 years ago, gave the World Cup to Qatar, had done no human rights analysis and assessment of the human rights impacts of doing so, despite the fact that Qatar, 90% of the working population in Qatar are in fact from migrant backgrounds, they're migrant workers. And we know, and it's consistently known, that migrant workers in Qatar are mistreated. They don't adequately get their wages and they are otherwise mistreated as well. And then off the back of that, of these people who are from the most deprived countries and backgrounds, often from rural areas in Nepal and other such countries, who pay there, who pay money to recruiters to even just get there to be able to work on, on what was the World Cup sites. And then we're not adequately paid some of whom died as a result of the work they were done. And there has been no adequate compensation for these individuals. And what we saw was, yes, there were some reforms as a result of what happened and the pressure that was put on, but we still see now that there are many, many migrant workers in that situation who have not, in fact, been paid and have had not had the appropriate remedies. And despite that, and despite the fact that it will be something like $6 billion dollars that FIFA will have got from the World Cup and sponsors similarly will have also obviously earned billions if not millions of, of dollars from that. We now leave this World Cup that, that it's closed. We saw a wonderful final but yet these workers from the most impoverished backgrounds remain unpaid and the families of those who have died remain in poverty and unpaid. Those that are in Qatar who are subject to discrimination and severe human rights abuses as a result of being a woman or as a result of being someone who identifies as an LGBTI individual will remain to be, remain subjected to these human rights violations and mistreatment. And yet we move on and we've allowed that to happen and FIFA has allowed that to happen. Um, and yes, I think it's very, very concerning that states like Qatar, Saudi Arabia and others are able, because of the money that they have, to be able to utilise these sporting events uh, and other such events. And, I mean, we saw it similarly with Kigami 
in Rwanda as well with Chogham. Chogham being the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting was held in Rwanda last year, despite the fact that there is severe repression in Rwanda. And there was no discussions about human rights in Rwanda during these meetings, but yet it provided a very nice opportunity for Kagame to be able to showcase uh, Rwanda as some progressive state and country. And yet, Really, I mean, it was literally they were sweeping individuals off the street and putting them in detention for the purposes of this conference. So I think we need to be very careful when we're thinking about these things. Yasmin Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're the briefing. Ever since the first issue of Monocle magazine hit newsstands in 2007, we've been photographing the world, capturing stories on film, on the ground and in the moment. The Monocle Book of Photography, reported from places less explored, celebrates this rich visual storytelling with dispatches from the banks of the Rio Grande, Syria's Aleppo before the war, a spectacular Swiss wine festival and a Greek naval academy. This powerful celebration of photojournalism also includes interviews with Monocle's favourite photographers. I see photography as a medium to tell stories and I've always been fascinated with human stories and places of conflict are where these stories are extremely poignant, compelling and powerful. Head to monocle.com and order your copy now and get a fresh focus on the world. Welcome back to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson, live on Monocle 24. Let's head to Montevideo in Uruguay to join our Latin American affairs correspondent, Lucinda Elliott. Hello, Lucinda. Hello, Emma. Very good morning to you. Let's begin with what's happening in Peru. Yeah, so at least 17 people and possibly more were killed in Peru this week in what has been described as the bloodiest day since protesters took to the streets to demand the release of of former President Pedro Castillo, who was detained in early December. And... These protesters, who are mostly from rural and poorer provinces where Castillo maintains strong support, have sporadically blocked roads and disrupted airports in recent weeks, although they did take a break over Christmas. But the latest clashes that began um, when about 9,000 people attempted to storm an airport in a city in in, in a southern province earlier this week, and now the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights is actually sending a delegation to evaluate the crisis, having condemned um, the violence in December. Let's move to Brazil. The weekend's news was dominated by the the images of beautiful, you know, important buildings in Brazil being stormed by protesters. How has the region reacted to what's happened? Yeah, so I've noticed how certain outlets in Latin America and, and, and differing sides have been trying to actually describe and define those people who stormed Congress and, and vandalised public buildings on Sunday. And while many say it was deplorable that they should be called terrorists or in, in Spanish called pistas, coomongers, there are others that, while they don't agree with the, the acts of violence, are saying that they are protesters or that, you know, this was a protest that got out of hand. And and I think this has sparked a kind of another question in local media you know, were these people like a, a 67 year old woman from the south of Brazil who was arrested on Sunday, were they heavily manipulated by someone or something else? What does it actually say about the level of education perhaps in Brazil? Um, and these are things that, that should be discussed. You know, I've had followers on social media from incredibly well-educated positions of privilege in Brazil and Latin America 
we strongly condemn anything other than that they are terrorists. Um, but again, this is also perhaps they're missing a trick, which is, you know, this is very new for Brazil. People are not necessarily listening to one another. And this is creating serious problems. So it sparked a really interesting linguistic debate, I think, um, here in the region, as um, well as obviously the unfolding story. Finally, let's finish with this lovely international film festival that's that's kicking off in Uruguay. And it's it's not happening in a, new, in a, new, in a usual spot, is it? It's going to a fishing village. Yeah, so a lighter note, Emma, from a rather heavy-duty Newsweek. Um, in Uruguay, you can watch films overlooking the water and under the stars in this coastal village that's become incredibly popular over the years. Jose Ignacio has been running GIF, its international film festival, for over a decade. And this year, I'm told they've invited some really big name producers to come to the screenings that take place this weekend, including the founder of Mubi, which is a streaming service, and, and the president of New York's Film Academy. And Uruguay has really been working hard to attract production and, and streaming companies like Netflix, HBO, and Disney to, to, to come and film in the country. And one great advantage, of course, is scenes like that. So um, do check out GIF, the, the festival. And it's also great news on the back of Argentina winning the Go Golden Globe this week for the best foreign language film for 1985. So a few uh, South American recommendations um, for a night in. Thank you very much indeed for that. Lucinda Elliott in Montevideo. You're listening to The Briefing. Let's continue with a touch of Latin American culture. Hello, Fernando Augusto-Pacheco. Hello, some nice cultural tips there from Lucinda. You, you were nodding and writing, which yes. is always good, because you're a cultural <laughs> hive of information. So face as we listen to it or watch it. We should. Uh, speaking of watching and listening, we now know we now we know why you're here, don't we? I'm taking you to the South Pacific. More specifically, I wish you were. yes. <laughs> well, I really wish we were there, and that's the reason why this is the country I chose for my first global countdown of the year: French Polynesia. Okay. I mean, I really want to be there right now, mm. having a lovely drink on the beach and mm. listening to those tracks because I think they really match the country somehow. I know some might say it's a cliche, but sometimes cliches can be good. We're not going to get many chilly beats in the next few tracks are we exactly because because i mean i having listened so the thing is i do listen to these things before we go on and it was it was well. like sand between the toes from minute one so whatever you are doing right now um i sort of almost want you to close your eyes as Faye and i take you to basically somewhere warm and sunny <laughs> not not a corner of london which i don't think we've seen blue sky for the last two months um okay so french polynesia can you before we dive in tell me a little bit about the kind of the general style and the vibe and and the sort of the, the scene in French Polynesia for those of us desperate to know. First of all, lots of local acts, uh, lots of reggae and, and, and new bands as well, which I will be discussing here. So, I mean, perhaps it's not as traditional as some might think, but clearly there is this elements of the beach culture, the Tahitian kind of uh, original rhythms, you know, uh, from the old times. But, you know, they, they, they are up with the times as well. You know, it's something that I can definitely see in the charts uh, somewhere else, including this track by no, uh, number five, Emma. It's funny because there's not much information about the artist. His name is DJ Knox, uh, mm. and the track is called Daddy O. Of course, it's it's a little bit electronic <laughs> here. This is definitely where you would hear in a chilled out night uh, uh, somewhere in Tahiti yeah, I, or in Papiti. I think we can safely say that the lyrics and the themes of, of, of today do not have the word woke attached to them. No. So, okay. Forget about okay, that. Daddy O, do your worst. Let's have a listen to DJ Knox. Daddy O, Daddy O, 
And okay, I love well. the globalized world, papacito, you know, a little bit of kind of Latin American rhythms in there as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm reading too much I'm, into I it. Know, I think you might be overthinking this, <laughs> um, Just a touch. I mean, it, it, look, just in front of me, I have you and I have all the people in the control room. We're on live radio and we're all taking a moment just to have a little bit of a shoulder shrug to that. The arms were going out in a gentle punch. It was all really relaxed, really nice. But then we're all looking at each other going, hmm. Is it really that good or are we just cold and in need of a bit of musical sunshine? Well, to be honest, number four, I generally think it's it's, it's better than DJ Knox. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, DJ, DJ Knox. Knox. DJ Knox, if you're listening to me, it's sorry. actually, it's a new band. Uh, they were formed in early 2022. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a very kind of famous singer in the region. Uh, no this hor- is number four. Number four. Number f- DJ Knox is gone. It's gone. We've got rid of him. We got rid sorry. of him. We have Kailoa, which is okay. a new band. You know, it's... It it's a, it's a brother, a cousin, so it's kind of a, a little bit of a family affair. Uh, the song is called Comme on rave, uh, like a drink. I mean, your, your French is better than mine. You might understand have a uh, go. the lyrics of this track. Okay, let's, let's have a little bit of Kailoa. Quand j'entends des poèmes, je chante la bohème que des sons que j'aime. Lovely. I don't think we're going to be making any lyrical challenges to the likes of Molière or Baudelaire. I think we're, I think we're sort of in pretty safe ground there. It's romantic, though. It's we okay. need a bit of romance, you it's know. It's all right. I mean, he sort of talks about you know nice poems, nice ladies. Um, the the video is worth watching, as per usual, for possibly not the right reasons. I mean, th- this guy is or this group they're they're sort of obviously quite profile because I think we're going to hear from them a little bit. I'm not massive doing a massive spoiler alert here by saying they're popping up later um again but when you look at the video please go and look at the video ladies and gentlemen not least for the possibly the naffest pair of reflective sunglasses i've (laughs) ever seen or i'm just rushing out to buy them and also it seems to have been filmed in a local park i mean i used to live in birmingham here in the uk i mean cannon hill park in birmingham doesn't look a million miles from where kailoa have decided to film that obviously very lovely song well i think they're budget was probably finished after another video of or them by, which was the in sunglasses. A, exactly exactly which was in a in a better location but i do i do like kailoa so well done they, and they're new they're very new to the uh, tahitian music scene as well mm. french polynesia of course or well, maybe they'll be able to buy i don't know a better camera when they when they get their next song into the top five brace yourselves there's more of that coming there's more of that but with some touches <clears throat> of hip-hop i would say i mean very really? mild very mild i was about to say you're stretching yeah me. i think i am stretching yes, a little, a little bit, bit today uh, it anyway, is... number three rusky banana best name of a band i've heard for a very long time and a good tune i like this tune it's called obey let's have a listen Challenging us too hard on the lyrics there. 
But you know, I think that's okay. I like it. I think that's okay. <laughs> Dare it, I say I like and, it? And they have the name Rusky Banana there. Yep. Uh, but so far, we just heard artists from French Polynesia, of course. But this next track, Emma, this is a song I was I just recently returned from Brazil. Mm. It was playing everywhere in the radio here in the UK as well. And and I think it's fantastic that uh, Nigeria is definitely a hotspot for musicians these days. There's so many, you know, we have artists like CK Barema as well. Uh, he has the song Calm Down, but this time he invited Selena Gomez to sing with him. I think, you know, it's good for the, especially for the American charts. Bit of Rema then. Exactly. Let's okay. have a listen. Don't you ask, you know I loved that song, not least because it has one of the most deliciously silly lyrics I've ever heard in a song. I don't know if you know how to say this on the radio. I start to feel her bum bum. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm very flexible. I come from Brazil. I bet the you're lyrics, very flexible. I'm very, because the lyrics in, in Brazilian music, they're so kind of a bit awkward at times. So. Okay. I don't. Really? Yeah. We'll do the Global Countdown Brazil next time. Please, please. And I think this song matches perfectly from what we've heard before. Of course, it's a, perhaps a little bit uh, well Lots produced. Lots of bum feeling. Lots of bum bum feeling. Mm. Do you want more bum bum? Always. <laughs> Can't get enough of it. Where are we going next? They are back. Uh, it's, it's Kailoa again. Oh, Sunglasses is back. Sunglasses is back. Love but it. This video is better, actually, Emma, because, you know, it, it sounds like a, a, a tourism ad uh, for French Polynesia as well. Because I mean, I mean, not minding the sunglasses. I mean, but you can see that beautiful sea color. And it's, it's the same glasses, though. Yeah. I mean, this is the same video than the, than the one that we had for number four. But it's it's on a beach, so that's absolutely fine. That's the good. The camera enough. is still wonky. Everything keeps going out of shot. Uh, he's got a girlfriend in this one, which is quite good. So he's obviously been, been able to shell out for extras. Um, but but what I quite like about it, it's it's sweet. Um, we'll listen to it in a second. But it, it has a sort of lovely bit of civic pride attached to it, which is lovely. Because he's inviting her to his paradise, which is in, in Tahiti, you know, where, where he's from. And, and who wouldn't like to live there with him, perhaps? Let's have a listen. Kailoa with Girl. Oh girl, let me show you my home. Come with me, live in paradise, feel with me the shine of Right. So, I mean, what I quite like about that is as a sort of an innocence to it, having had Remmer and his bum bum, um, there's a like, come and live with me. It's all sweet. We'll have a cuddle. I'll loan you my sunglasses. We'll have a nice drink and, and it'll everything's happy. Reminds me, I mean, you as a Brit, uh, reminds me a little bit of Peter Andre, Mysterious well, Girl, I mean, late 90s, early noughties, I'm perhaps. Not, I'm not going to pass any judgments about anybody's waistlines <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> But you know, um, compared with Peter Andre, who obviously was, you know, it, half of his job was supposed to be, you know, to, to look the way he did. But yeah, no, it's 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 fine. Any of the most important question are any of these making it to the monocle playlist? Well, I think calm down. I think it's it's a very strong contender. But from the locals, 
I don't know. Maybe Kailoa actually could be a good one mm. with girl. Look forward to introducing it as part of the Monocle playlist. <laughs> Fernanda Agusta Pacheco, thank you so much for this week's Global Countdown. And that's all we have time for today's briefing. Many thanks to our producer Paige Reynolds, researcher Andre Nikolai Pemichon, and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. Join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thank you.